I need to begin today with a couple of announcements. I want you to be aware of a couple of dates that are coming up. Uh, we have, number one, our last Go and Do event of the year is scheduled to take place officially on Saturday, December 11th. So mark your calendars for that. We're going to be preparing and delivering meals to uh, those who are maybe food-deprived and so or, or just struggling to, uh, to, to make ends meet. We're going to be delivering some holiday feasts to these individuals. And we're talking turkey and dressing and yams and, and everything else. So make plans to join us for that uh, on Saturday, December 11th. We're going to be doing some preparatory work before that day, and you might want to take part in that as well. On the Saturday before, that would be Saturday, December 4th, we're going to be going out to... Uh, to a particular location in, in Buford to pass out information about this, uh, this feast that we're going to be delivering so people will know about it and make themselves available on, on the 11th. So if you want to help us go canvas a little bit on Saturday, December 4th, or you want to help us with some variety of opportunities on Saturday, December 11th, be thinking about it. There will be more information coming out this week in the bulletin, and there will be sign-up sheets for you to volunteer in various capacities. So keep that on your radar. It's our last go-and-do event for 2021. But it's not the end of go-and-do, as has been mentioned. We're going to be continuing these service opportunities, these community outreach opportunities, annually from here on out. So keep that going. So I wanted to make you aware of those two dates, and I also, I, I cannot recall or um, if this was announced earlier, but just in case it wasn't, I'm going to cover our bases. But we have a new sister in Christ who was baptized Wednesday night by Mingu Sheng. Her name, and I hope I say it correctly, is Yun Jung Hong. Yun Jung Hong. She is sitting right back here by Yun Suk. And we are grateful that she is a part of our family. Thank you, Yun Jung Hong. Uh, but we wanted to acknowledge that we have a new sister in Christ, and that is a wonderful thing. We are very blessed to have her added to the family of God. The angels are rejoicing in heaven, and so are we. With that being said, I want to uh, tell you a story that you may have heard before about two brothers. They were twins, identical twins. One of them was the greatest optimist there ever was. He saw the good in everything and was positive about everything, and the other brother was the exact opposite. He was the biggest pessimist there ever was. He could complain about anything and everything. And right now, some of you are looking around because there's somebody you know that's that eternal optimist, and there's somebody you know that, that is, is that, that constant pessimist. But think of it, these two brothers uh, were so extreme from one another that their parents took them to a psychologist. And a psychologist spoke with them for a while and said, I think, I think I know what I can do to help them. So he set up a little experiment. And he brought the two brothers into this facility where in one giant room, he placed every toy, every play item that he could find or come up with Everything that a child would want to play with, he put all of it in one room, and he sent the pessimistic child into that room. And then he 
created another room, and the only thing in, he put in there was a massive pile of manure. And he sent the boy, who was the eternal optimist, into that room. And then he stood behind a, a, a one-way mirror and observed the children. The optimistic child was in there with all those toys, and he played for a little bit, and then he just sat down, and he, and he said, there's nobody to play with, and he quit playing. After observing that, the psychologist went to the other room, and, and when he looked through the window, he saw that optimistic boy digging through the manure. He was covered in it head to toe. He was buried in this manure, digging through it. And the psychologist, worried about hygiene, ran into the room and asked the boy, what are you doing? And the boy said, well, with this much manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. You know, some of us, some of us are the glass half full kind of people. Some of us are the glass half empty. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? And it's very interesting because I've discovered that in, in, in studying Scripture, I can often approach a text with a very optimistic outlook, and, and I'm, I'm looking for the things to commend, and I'm looking for the things that are praiseworthy and exemplary. But I can also often approach a text with a very pessimistic outlook. What, where are the warnings? What are the, what are the things I am not to emulate? And I, I was very intrigued by this um, uh, perspective shift that we can have, these differences of perspective that we can possess, because as I approached our text for today, which is in Acts chapter 8, I found myself pulled between both directions, wanting to approach this text as a cautionary tale with warnings about attitudes and behaviors and conduct that we should avoid, but also wanting to approach this text as a model story of attitudes and actions and conduct that we should emulate. And so I'm going to try to strike a balance today. What I want to do is pull from the account here in Acts chapter 8 some negative, some negative points and some positive points. I want us to look at both sides of the story today because it's such a fascinating account. And let's set it up for just a moment. When we get to Acts chapter 8, we have just ended with the death, the execution, the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And we find out that there's a man there who, who was um, tending to the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. His name was Paul. And at the start of Acts chapter 8, Paul becomes the ultimate persecutor of the church. We're actually told he was ravaging the church. That's a very strong term to describe what Paul was doing to Christians at that time. And as you look at Acts chapter 8, the persecution that Paul was a massive part of was so great that Christians had to leave Jerusalem. And in leaving Jerusalem, they traveled into other parts of Judea, even into the uh, multicultural section of Samaria. And as those Christians moved out from Jerusalem, they carried with them the gospel. And the focus of the story shifts 
to one of Stephen's companions of working with widows in Jerusalem, and that was a guy named Philip. And Philip's going to be this individual who preaches the gospel in Samaria and converts, in particular, one individual named Simon. That's a little synopsis of the story thus far. But what I want to focus in on first and foremost is this mission to Samaria. This is a big deal. We kind of underestimate how important this chapter is in the spread of the gospel. Because we think in terms of Acts 2, the beginning of the church. And then we think in terms of Acts 10, the first Gentile convert. And now the gospel's expanding. But we have to acknowledge that in between the, the, the introduction of the church and the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles and around the world in the missions of Paul, we have this trans, transition step where the gospel is being spread into a group of individuals who were hated by the Jews. There is a multicultural peace to the spread of the gospel in Acts chapter 8. And here's what I find interesting. When I look at Acts chapter 8 and this mission to the Samaritans, here's the negative that I notice. I notice that the apostles failed to progress the mission. Now you're going to have to work with me for just a moment to get the point that I'm making. So walk along with me for just a moment. When you look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we're told about this persecution against the church in Jerusalem and that the Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There's a little note at the end of verse 1 that tells us, except the apostles. The apostles did not leave Jerusalem. It's not that they uh, uh, were against going out into other regions. It's just that I believe they stayed in Jerusalem to keep the church together. They were going to face whatever consequences there may be because they were bold, they were courageous, they were brave, they were not afraid of persecution. They were not going to run from it. That's my opinion. But we have this situation where the apostles stay in Jerusalem, other Christians, other disciples scatter. And so someone like Philip finds himself in the regions of Judea and Samaria where the gospel had not presented yet been presented yet, and so he presents it. Now, I want you to go back to Acts chapter 1. Keep your page there in Acts chapter 8, because that's going to be the focus of our study. But go back to Acts chapter 1, and I want you to notice the last thing that Jesus said to the apostles, his last conversation before his ascension, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, here's what we read. It says, so when they, okay, who's they? If you actually go back a little bit to the first verse of the chapter, you find out that they is a reference to the apostles. So when they, the apostles, had come together, they, the apostles, asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, again, the apostles, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's fulfilled in a few verses in Acts chapter 2. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What I want you to notice is back in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus returned to heaven, he gave his apostles a very specific assignment. He didn't give this assignment to everyone necessarily. He specifically gave it to the apostles. He assigned them the responsibility of witnessing among four groups, the third of which is identified as Samaria. So I find it very interesting that the apostles aren't the first ones taking the gospel into Samaria. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because you're a contrarian like me. And some of you are thinking, Jesus said you will be my witnesses in Samaria, not you will be the ones who take the gospel into Samaria. So that means they're not unfaithful to their specific mission. I, I totally get that. But let's not forget that Jesus had given them the Great Commission, in which he specifically instructed them but also applying to us. He instructed them to go and make disciples of all nations. That's Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. And the problem is that up until this point in the story of Acts, the apostles hadn't gone anywhere yet. And the apostles hadn't pursued any other nations yet. And I couldn't help but wonder, why had they not begun the outward expansion of the kingdom yet? I'm really not trying to, to demean the apostles. I'm not really trying to criticize the apostles. I'm not really trying to say that the apostles sinned. That's not my objective here. I'm wanting you to think, though, at this point, no one had made a progression outside of Jerusalem as far as we know a progression for the kingdom of God. Why not? It's as if God had to utilize this persecution to get the ball rolling, kind of like it's the Tower of Babel, and they're not, they're not spreading, they're not going into the whole world to populate it, so I've got to confuse their language to get the ball rolling. That's the perception that I kind of have to some degree. Again, I'm not trying to say the apostles are doing something wrong, I just don't know why the apostles didn't initiate the kingdom expansion that Jesus outlined in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Maybe it's because they were operating with an outdated model. There was a time shortly after they were appointed as apostles that Jesus actually prevented them from sharing the gospel in Judea and Samaria. You can go back to Matthew chapter 10 verses 5 and 6 where Jesus, sending them out on a missionary campaign, specifically said, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It may be that they still hear those words in their minds. It may be that they're still dealing with their own Jewish heritage. All of the apostles were Jews, and so all of the apostles struggled with despising Samaritans. And that animosity manifested itself 
in these very disciples when Jesus took them through Samaria on one occasion. And he stopped at a well and sent them into the city to get food. They came back to Jesus at the well. He's interacting with a Samaritan woman. That Samaritan woman goes into town, brings the whole town out to meet Jesus, and we're told that many Samaritans believed. But those disciples, among whom included these apostles, went into that town to get food and didn't bring a single soul back to be with Jesus. And Jesus, in John chapter 4, in verse 35, he said to them, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's telling them to see past their prejudiced barriers. He's in effect saying, guys, look at this place. Right now is harvest time. Open your eyes. Because right now you have an opportunity among these people. Again, I don't know why the apostles didn't initiate the kingdom expansion. But I do know that I don't want to ever be a kink in God's kingdom. You know what a kink is, right? You ever get a kink in the water hose? That point at which it gets bunched up or it gets bent and now the water's not flowing anymore? You know, it's possible for you or I or any other disciple to become a kink in the kingdom. That we become someone who interferes, or I should say hinders, or becomes an obstacle to God's expansion. Now, God's going to work around it. God's always going to have his way of making things happen. But he intends on you being a funnel through which he can accomplish that. See, I'm reminded of an occasion in the ministry of Jesus when Peter became a kink. It's in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus had just told his apostles that he's got to die. That he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's going to have to die. And Peter intervened. Peter tried to prevent Jesus from moving in the direction of laying down his life. And what did Jesus say to Peter? You know it because you've probably used it on somebody. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. How do you think it feels to be called Satan by the Son of God? And it's all because Peter is a kink in the moment. Jesus goes on to say, You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And when Peter became that hindrance to Christ's mission, Jesus associated with him with Satan. I also want you to think about that parable of the talents. Do you remember how Jesus described that one talent servant in Matthew chapter 25? He referred to him as wicked, lazy, and worthless. All because he refused to contribute to the kingdom expansion of his master. Wicked, lazy, 
worthless. And where did he end up? In the outer of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what that's a reference to, right? Here's my point. My point is that even though the apostles aren't criticized in this text, and I don't believe that they've committed some sin here, I think we can learn from their failure to move forward with the plan that we shouldn't ever become a kink in Christ's mission. Because it's quite evident in Scripture that the Lord's not pleased with kinks. So my question for you, or the first question for you today is, is are you a kink? Are you interfering? Are you hindering? Are you an obstacle to the growth of the kingdom because you're not participating in it? Are you a kink? I think that's a negative example that we can learn from in this Samaritan expansion, but I do think there's a positive. And I think the positive we can take away from that is that from this is that other Christians succeeded at being the good. Now that phraseology doesn't sound good, but hopefully you'll understand why I use it in just a moment. See, the apostles didn't move forward with kingdom expansion, but that didn't stop God from using other people to expand his kingdom in Acts chapter 8. So at the start of Acts 8, as I've mentioned, there was a great persecution against the church, which resulted in Christians being scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now this is a new type of persecution. We've talked about persecution in our study of Acts already because persecution started back in Acts chapter 4. But this is different. See, the persecution in Acts chapter 4 and 5, that was targeting the church's leaders, the apostles in particular. It was limited in who it affected. But now persecution is affecting the entire congregation. Now persecution is directed at everyone who wears the name of Christ. And this persecution is different because back in chapter 4 and 5, it was persecution conducted by the Sanhedrin, by the leaders of the Jews, by, by a group made up of scribes and priests and elders. The Jewish leaders were the only ones persecuting anybody back in Acts chapter 4 and verse 5, chapter 4 and 5. But now in Acts chapter 8, every Jewish person is getting in on the action. You can go back to chapter, uh, the end of chapter 6 as Stephen's story is unfolding, and Stephen's brought before the Sanhedrin for a trial that eventually ends in his murder. But he's brought, not by Jewish leaders, but by Jewish people. See, the persecution has broadened from who's directing it. It's no longer just the leaders. It's anyone who's a Jewish person is now involved in persecuting Christians. And if you go back to Acts chapter 4 and 5, there's another difference that needs to be noted. Back then, persecution involved arrests and trials and beatings. But now post-Stephen, persecution included the potential for death. This has escalated quickly. And Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 goes on to indicate that the persecution was so great that, as I've mentioned, many Christians were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And while being forced to leave your house 
and forced to leave your home congregation is absolutely a disheartening thing. These Christians in Acts chapter 8, they didn't grow disheartened or disillusioned. Because if you look at verse 4, a beautiful thing happens. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In other words, instead of dwelling on their misfortune, these scattered Christians focused on their opportunity. Their forced exile from Jerusalem may have distanced them from their fellow believers, but it brought them into contact with multitudes of people who had never heard about Jesus. And in the end, God used this bad situation to accomplish something good. And I believe that's the epitome of what Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says. Do you recall that verse? Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that for, the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's a beautiful verse sometimes, and that's a hard verse sometimes. Beautiful in the sense that it reminds us that God can make good results come out of even the worst situations, but it's difficult when you're in the bad situation. It's difficult to wait on the good. Here's why I connect that verse to this situation in Acts chapter 8. See, the Christians here in Acts chapter 8 who went about spreading the gospel despite the fact that they were driven off from Jerusalem, they intentionally became the good. These dispersed Christians were intentional about being a part of God's good results that came out of a bad situation. They made themselves available to produce good results, despite the fact that they were suffering from the bad situation. And that poses this question. Are you intentionally being a part of God's good, good results in the world around you? Are you intentionally being a part of the good results that God's producing in the world around you? Do you remember where we got the go and do theme from? What its origin in Scripture was? The source material for our go and do theme was the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. And it, that's a very popular parable. You probably know the summation of it, but here it goes in case you've never heard it. There's a guy traveling to Jericho when all of a sudden he was mugged and left for dead on the side of the road. Two religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, they walk by, they see him in his dire condition, and they intentionally choose to do nothing. Later, another guy who happens to be a Samaritan, by the way. He travels along, he sees the guy on the side of the road, and he intentionally chooses to do something to help him. Three guys enter the scene, see the same situation. Two of them make the choice not to help. One of them, one of them decides that he's going to do something about it. One of them 
chooses to be the source of God's good result in a bad situation. And at the end of the story, do you remember what Jesus said? You go and do likewise. And my point is this. It may just be that you're the agent through whom God can produce good results in a bad situation somebody else. Maybe like these dispersed Christians in Acts chapter 8, you can become an agent of God's good in the world for somebody else. Maybe you can change the situation for another person who's struggling. Take that away from the text as well. Take the warning not to be a kink, but take the example of being the source of good. And as we continue through the story, we encounter a guy named Simon the Sorcerer. We're introduced to him. He was a a professional magician before he became a Christian. We're told in Acts chapter 8 and verse 13 that upon hearing Philip's preaching, this guy named Simon believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, I want you to let those details sink in for a minute. Simon believed and was baptized. That means he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus paid the price for his sins, that Jesus was the only means to salvation. It also means that he became a Christian. He confessed that belief. He repented of his sins, and he was immersed in water for the forgiveness of his sins. But the text goes on to say that Simon continued with Philip. The terminology used here seems to indicate that Simon became a follower or co-worker or companion of Philip. The Greek term translated continued with means to adhere to or to be devoted to or to persevere with something. And it seems to imply that Simon gave up the magical, well, his magical practice to provide full-time support of Philip's ministry. And it's worth mentioning that after his conversion, we do not read of Simon practicing magic anymore. Suffice it to say that not only did Simon become a Christian, but at least in my opinion, it sounds like he became an invested disciple. Now, there is an additional detail about Simon that we must point out, and it has to do with his character. Simon was consumed with himself. He wanted attention. He wanted glory. Acts chapter 8, verse 9 and 10 tells us that prior to his conversion, while he was still practicing magic, he proclaimed that he himself was somebody great, and as a result, everyone paid attention to him. So the point is that inherent within Simon is this desire for greatness, this desire for recognition, this desire for adulation. And prior to becoming a Christian, Simon's desire for this, it had been filled because of his ability to do magic. But he gave up the source of his greatness, the source of his recognition, the source of of his adulation when he became a Christian. And so when Simon witnessed Peter and John 
laying their hands on the Samaritan believers and thereby imparting the miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit to them, he saw a means through which he could obtain greatness again. And he attempted to buy this ability from Peter and John in verse 17, 18, and 19 of Acts 8. When I read about Simon's story, it's saddening. Here's a guy who gives up his former life and becomes a Christian, but then he has this resurgence of his former life where he's trying to buy an ability that doesn't belong to him. In my eyes, Simon's problem was that he failed to maintain humility. He chose humility when he believed Philip's preaching. He chose humility when he continued with Philip. But that inherent desire for attention that he may have been able to contain for a while, it resurfaced and caused him to abandon humility when he saw an opportunity to obtain greatness again. Humility is one of those topics that rises up into my sermons from time to time. In fact, it's already been a part of a sermon in this series. It's one of those subject matters that sometimes I feel like I beat with a dead horse. Wait, that's not the phrase, but oh well. It's one of those topics that I feel like I can talk about all the time. And for many of us, it just goes in one ear and out the other, including myself. See, I think for many of us, we, ch- we choose humility one time. One time, and we think, I checked that box. Time to move on to the next thing. I mean, we think, oh, humility, you know what? That wasn't one of the fruit of the Spirit, so I don't have to have that. I can go on. We view humility as an option that we can use when we need to, and as long as we've done it once, we're good to go. Once humble, always humble, right? But consider the way humility is addressed in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 tells us to put on humility among other qualities. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. You see, humility is depicted in the Bible as something you have to dress yourself in. It's as though God's trying to get us to envision humility as an article of clothing you have to intentionally put on in the morning. It's as though leaving your house without having put on humility leaves you naked and exposed. So here's my point today. We have to start seeing humility as an attribute that we intentionally put on at the start of every day. And this is vitally important because God only sees two kinds of people. He sees those who exalt themselves and he sees those who humbles themselves. At least that's the two categories of people Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 18 and verse 14 when he said, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And scripture asserts that only those who humble themselves will at the proper time be exalted by God. So look at Simon the sorcerer. 
see in him someone who humbled himself to become a Christian, but someone who lost their humility when they saw the opportunity for greatness. And learn from it that humility isn't something you just do once. Humility is something you put on every day. Because you don't want to be seen in the eyes of God as someone who exalts himself or herself. Because that never ends well. So we can see in Simon the sorcerer something we can learn from that was a negative example, but let me turn to the positive. See, Simon gets a bad rap here. He gets criticized because of his desire to buy the laying on of hands power that only the apostles have. But I think there's something incredible about Simon that we overlook. You see, after this whole, let me try to buy this thing, Peter has some hard words for Simon. Or Simon has some hard words for Simon. See, Peter unapologetically confronts Simon. And look at what Peter said in Acts chapter 8, verse 20 through 23. He said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, how many of us would have had the audacity to say those things to Simon the sorcerer. I want you to think about it. There's a confrontation happening here. There is a corrective confrontation. There is a brother in Christ going to another brother in Christ and telling him that he's sinned. And he does it unapologetically. How many of us are willing to do that? All too often, we avoid such confrontations because we're afraid of how the other person might react or because we believe their sin is none of our business or we believe that we're going to push them away. We've lost in our culture an appreciation for the Bible's teaching on the, necess the necessity of Christian intervention. Let me remind you of a few texts. Christians are instructed on multiple occasions to admonish one another. Paul told the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able, able to admonish one another. And then Paul wrote the church in Thessalonica and said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, or he gave this instruction, he said, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. There's a call to admonish. Now, to admonish someone spiritually is to warn or to advise or to urge someone to remember and or abide by God's expectations. And I think that's Paul's ultimate point when he gets to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, when he said that as Christians we are warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There is an objective that Scripture calls us to, to, an objective to be willing to confront 
and admonish one another when sin is present. Nowhere is this more clear than in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, where Paul says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul's instruction indicates that if we recognize that one of our brothers or sisters is erring, then we have a responsibility to pursue their restoration. Now, I think we've lost an appreciation for the necessity of those kind of confrontations. For corrective action, brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister, sister to brother, it doesn't matter. But the scriptures speak clearly that this is a responsibility we have to one another. So we've got to stop being afraid to confront sin. But Simon teaches us an even more valuable lesson here. We need to be able to accept correction too. You see, one of the reasons we as brothers and sisters in Christ are afraid to correct each other is because of how the other person reacts. Have you ever tried to talk to one of your brothers and sisters in Christ about something you know they're struggling with and all they do is get defensive and they start attacking you and they pull out that whole, hey, he who has the first sin can cast the first stone. Have you ever been there and experienced that? Have you ever had somebody say, hey, you're trying to spot out the speck in my eye, but get the log out of yours? We're really good at quoting Scripture when we're under attack, aren't we? But I want you to look at Simon here. Simon has blatantly sinned. Paul has corrected him Pretty clearly, Paul not, excuse me, Peter has corrected him. And when you look at Simon's response in verse 24, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Let me read between the lines there. Simon's saying, oh, I'm sorry, I get it now. Will you pray for me? I'm repenting. I fully believe that in this moment, Simon the sorcerer is repenting of his attempt to buy this power. He's acknowledging that it's wrong, and he's asking for Peter, the one who has come to correct him. He's asking for Peter to pray for him. And so when I consider the fact that the Bible expects us to correct one another, I believe implicit within that is the expectation that we can receive godly correction in a godly way. See, if the Bible indicates that the church is responsible for admonishing one another, and if the Bible expects Christians to correct each other when we're caught in a sin, then we can't but assume, excuse me, then we cannot I can't read my own writing right now. And it's not that I wrote it, it's, in digi- it's typed, but my words are out of order. I was trying to read that statement, but n- negate that. 
Here's the thing. That was awful. That was stumbling. I apologize. I want you to notice in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, there's a condition for correction. It's called a spirit of gentleness. It's an inference to the fact, or it means that you have to approach such correction in a spirit of love, not a spirit of arrogance. Guess what? When you receive correction, you should receive it in a spirit of love, not a spirit of arrogance. We need to be a people who can not only correct one another when we're doing wrong, but that we can receive it when it's our time to be corrected. Because that's the expectation of Scripture, and that's modeled by Simon here. Today's lesson may feel like a hodgepodge of points plucked from the passage. And maybe it is. But maybe a, a shotgun approach like that is beneficial today. Because maybe you're struggling to be an agent through which God can continue his mission. Maybe you're not contributing or participating in kingdom expansion the way that God has called you to through the Great Commission. Maybe you're a kink today, and you need to acknowledge that and you need to repent of it. Maybe today you're struggling with humility. Maybe you've done that, I've put humility on once, and I'm good to go for the rest of my life, and you need to return to an understanding of that humility must be put on every day. And you need to repent of exalting yourself and failing to be humble. Maybe today you realize you haven't been an agent for good in people's lives. And that you've missed an opportunity for God in that realm. And you want to start doing better. And you want to become someone that blesses those with whom you come in contact with. Maybe today you recognize that you don't take criticism real. Maybe today you recognize that you've been living in sin and you need correction. And it's time to repent. You see, even though it may have been a shotgun approach to a passage, there's a whole lot we can take from what's happening in Acts chapter 8. And how it applies to you may be different than how it applies to me. But there's something in this text for all of us to grow, to be more like Christ, and to serve the Lord better. This morning, as we gather here and as we end this lesson, we extend the invitation as we do every week. If you're struggling with something, if you need to repent, if you need to put on Christ in baptism, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.